I'm Kev Jackson. Welcome to Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. On today's show, pro angler and former NWT national champ John Hoyer has a lot of cool things going on. And if you're headed for college soon and love the outdoors, Dr. Brian Hiller of Bemidji State's Wildlife Biology Program joins us to talk about the program and the projects undertaken by students and faculty. Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors is sponsored by DS Beverages, Paul Bunyan Country's distributor of Anheuser-Busch, Ace on the Lake on Lake Bemidji's South Shore, Bonded Lock and Key, your home for Liberty Safes, Pepsi and I Bottling of Bemidji, Timberline Sport and Convenience in Black Duck, and Clearbrook Electric. Later on, we'll hear from pro angler John Hoyer, and we will be jealous. But up first, we hear from Brian Hiller, professor of biology, wildlife specialist at Bemidji State University. Bemidji State is one of the great things we have in the area, and its graduates have been making positive impacts in many fields for decades. One of its newer programs is the Wildlife Biology Program, and we are already seeing its impact in the area, and its influence will be felt further and further as more and more graduates make their mark in the future. Brian, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for joining us on Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having us on. So tell me a little bit about the development of the, the wildlife biology program now. Um, that has been something people have studied, wildlife biology, here for a while, but an actual wildlife biology major is actually relatively new to the uh, university, correct? It is. So back probably about 2010, 2009, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Rave uh, really saw a need. You know, she saw this niche, sort of open niche here. And again, you know, sort of taking advantage of you know, BSU's idea of sort of themes of place. There's no better place in the world to do wildlife biology than here. She started um, teaching some wildlife biology classes um, and really saw the potential for it. And so she started with, you know, a wildlife class, and then it evolved into an emphasis within the biology. So you get a a biology degree with an emphasis in wildlife management. And then that got you know, sort of really rolling, and she ended up getting um, getting a position available to actually build the wildlife program. That was the position that I took. Um, you know, I was I was offered in 2012. I got here in the fall of 2012, and you know, Liz is just awesome. This is totally her brainchild. Um, you know, when we sort of look at the history of this program, it's you know, it was really her her forward thinking and her planning. She's wonderful at that, and so her idea was. You know, let's get this, let's, you know, let's bring somebody in and we'll develop this program and build it into, you know, maybe five years down the road, we'll build it into a, a full wildlife biology major. Um, well, I'm, you know, not really a, you know, I'm a f- sort of outspoken guy, sort of, you know, out there, pretty energetic, um, <laughs> figured, well, why wait that long? <laughs> um, you know, the goal was, you know, the task was pretty easy. I mean, for me, it was, it was pretty clear. It wasn't easy necessarily in terms of actually implementing it, but, but the outset and the plan was was pretty straightforward. How do we go from one class with a wildlife, you know, principles of wildlife biology class to a full major? What do we need to do? You know, so Liz did a great job of sort of laying that blueprint out, and I just sort of you know sped the process up pretty fast. Um, so when I got here, we had one class. I brought in um, the first year. I taught an, a second class in the fall, so that was two, and then in the spring. Um, I added another wildlife class um, to the spring. I added Upland. And then basically within the first three years, we got the full major up and running and approved. Um, so we, we were two years ahead of time for that um, to just try and get it up. And, and my main thought process was, well, how do I tell the students that are here right now 
that I just needed like an extra hour of sleep every night or, you know, whatever to not get them to full major. So we just sort of, you know, Liz and I got together and we, and we, uh, we worked pretty hard to, to sort of ramp that up and, and make sure that as many students as possible could, could get the major. And we had our first one, the first major graduate, um, in that. So that would have been 2015 in the December of 2015, uh, Skylar Vold, who's a, just a wonderful, a wonderful representation of our wildlife major. I think he actually just finished the master's degree, uh, in Wisconsin. Um, so, you know, it was a, and it was an opportunity. And the, the cool part for me was not only was I coming back to a place that I already knew I loved because I had done a master's degree here in education many years ago. Um, but it was a place where I thought, you know, it really is the best of all worlds. I mean, there aren't many places in the world where you can actually visit four relatively distinct biomes within like an hour and a half campus. So it's like the perfect place to do this. Um, and during my interview, they said, well, you know, what kind of stuff could you do here? And I said, well, what could I not do here? I mean, the only thing I can't do here is like desert and Arctic, um, because you have everything else. You have, you know, big woods, you have boreal forests, you have plains and prairies, you have, you know, deciduous hardwoods, you've got, you know, a little slice of, you know, Canadian Aspen parkland that slides down by thief. So just everything you could do here is just, it's limitless. Um, and my background is really sort of bird stuff. So, we have the waterfowl research unit here, so that you don't really need a, a duck person per se. Um, but there was a great opportunity to, to sort of start some cool projects and, and really sort of get it ramped up. Um, and we got it done, and, and the major has been running ever since and just growing like wildfire, quite honestly, um, you know, ever since we got it approved um, to the point where um, two years ago we had to run a search for another person. Um, so we ended up um, running a search, and we were able to hire Dr. Jacob House, um, whom you'll talk to shortly, I imagine. Um, and and really, you know, he's the expansion of it. So my job was to sort of build it and get it to a point where we could start the major. And now we've got Jake, and he's going to expand it into new offerings. It allows more flexibility in our scheduling, allows us to offer more in different classes, um, more graduate classes. Um, so there's a uh, we're just going to keep growing, basically, is, is the plan at this point. Okay. Well, let's let's get a couple of definitions in. It's been a long time since I had 10th grade biology. So um, let's do a, just a general definition of what biology is, and then um, then tell me about wildlife biology, the, the key differences there. And so biology in general, if you're looking at a general biology degree, you're going to, you have more flexibility in taking. You can take a wider variety of stuff. Um, I think when most people look at a biology degree, they think um, sort of just living things. They don't specify it into which living things. You know, you know so we have uh, biomedical um, stuff. You know, we have the indoor folks um, who are doing micro stuff and doing um, like human physiology. And we have quite a, you know, quite a, a good crew of, of cancer researchers in our biology department. Um, and with the outdoor folks, you know, we have within our biology department, we have, you know, a couple of different sort of, Emphases. So we have the aquatic biology folks um, who do all the lakes and rivers and streams and the fishery stuff. Um, and we also have um, Dr. Mark Fulton who sort of splits the difference between the two because he's a forest, he's a forest ecologist um, and a really, um, really does a lot of cool, cool forest work. And then you've got the wildlife uh, crew and, and Liz Rave, um, Dr. Rave is her emphasis and her history is, has been like conservation biology, working on genetic, uh, really cool genetic stuff. 
she did Nene geese, um, Hawaiian geese as, as part of her doctorate. Um, so she does a lot of genetic stuff. And like I said, I, I do mostly bird stuff. Although when I got here, there's just so much opportunity that I was, ha- had a hard time saying no. You know? <laughs> so we started doing the Bemidji deer surveys. You know, we did, you know, we run around do do spotlight surveys for the city deer council. Um, to help inform and use again use science to to inform our policy decisions at the city level, um, that was you know how do I turn that down? That's a cool opportunity for my students to go out and participate in real data collection for science that's going to influence policy. Um, you know, so that was a great opportunity. I you know I had a, a graduate student who uh, who wanted to to work on wolves and you know is there more a more iconic Northwoods you know animal than wolves in Minnesota? I don't think there is. Um, and so she's finishing up her master's degree um, this spring, um, looking at the sort of you know use wolf use of habitat where you know we've included more roads. We've always thought of wolves as needing these big, you know, untouched patches. Well, it turns out wolves actually may may come into town a lot more than we maybe think. Um, and you know they're living in, in sort of more harmony with, than than we maybe uh, gave them credit for. I had another graduate student who's finishing up doing waterfowl work. She just finished in December. So I've sort of had a, a bunch of different stuff come up, and I'm like, yeah, that's cool. Let's do it. Um, you know, and, and I'm not really a deer guy. I'm not really a wolf guy. I'm a bird guy. So my Purple Martin projects have been ongoing. have been doing bluebird project um, and bluebird and tree swallow project around town quite a bit. So with the addition of Jake, we're – we're able to sort of expand into more big game, more deer research. I know we're going to, we're going to um, hopefully collaborate on a, on a deer collaring project in the near future to look at how deer are using that urban suburban um, interface so that Jake can talk more about that stuff. Um, you know, he's got a graduate student doing some other work on mammals as well. Whereas I'm going to probably move more into, into ducks and, and stay with my, uh, my bird stuff. You know, I talked to um, coaches who recruit athletes to Bemidji State University. One of the key things that brings them here, besides the fact we've actually been pretty good at a lot of sports recently, is the fact that <laughs> we, we've got a lot of fishing and hunting opportunities. And a lot of those kids like that. A lot of them end up being um, aquatic biology, wildlife biology majors, that type of thing. Um, and I would assume if you're recruiting that type of student, like you mentioned, it's it's the ideal campus, right? I mean, can it get any better? No, I, honestly, I don't really think it can. You know, I look out I look out my window, and I, I I'm fortunate enough to be on the lakeside now, uh, and so I I look out and I've got my binoculars always there, and I'm always watching the ducks in the fall and watching the birds migrate in the spring, and you know, keeping track of what's going on, and you know, we put a dock out right in back of my office, so every day, you know, as I walk into school, like you know, I go out and I stop and i take my 10 cast off the dock and see if i can catch fish and then i you know pack my rod up and i walk in my office and and you know i see my students and and on the way out i stop and take a few casts off the dock and and people are like well how do you fish you know you fish 150 something days a year and i'm like well i work on a six thousand acre playground <laughs> it'd be wrong for me to not take a couple of casts off the dock and I, I don't have to go fish for 10 hours i can take 10 casts off the dock and you know it's it's a pretty good release you know a good sure. good relaxation but you, you're right you know i mean we recruit students, you know, to play sports here, and they kind of come here, and some of them, they look out the window, and like, is that really? And I was like, yeah, no, that's 6,000 acres of, you know, of muskie and, and walleye territory out there. Um, and and they so they say, well, what, what hunting opportunities? And I said, honestly, this is just about heaven. 
you know, and I've been a, a very strong proponent over the years of, of making people aware of the value of public land. You know, I'm, I'm not a landowner. I'm, you know, I may own land in the future, but I don't right now. Um, and a lot of people don't. And, but the opportunity for us around here is really tremendous. I mean, you have a lot of county owned land, you know, Three Island County Park. Um, you've got a lot of, of county land east, west, north, south, everywhere. Plus you've got state land. Plus you've got federal land. You can pretty much, you know, drive any direction. And within a couple of miles of town, you can pull off to the side of the road and take your gun and walk into the woods. There's not many places in the world you can do that. Um, and certainly not as someone who, you know, grew up in the east where I grew up, there was no state land to go to. I mean, it was private land or nothing. And so if you didn't know somebody, you, you were excluded from it. But I think here, you know, the real value is that, you know, and our students definitely take advantage of it. Is that you, you know, they can go and they don't have to worry about whether or not they own land or act, get permission. Um, so there are some real, there are some real values for, you know, for around here. And, and I think that's, that's one of the big attraction, you know, points for our students too. Um, and, and we've, I, I mean, again, I think half the time, you know, in the, in the fall and spring, my, my sort of fellow, fellow faculty members are wondering whether or not I'm running a hunting and fishing camp in my, <laughs> out of my office. You know, the students come back after class or they're coming from their class and they come by my office and they're like, Hey, how, you know, how'd the fishing go this weekend or how, you know, did you see any ducks this weekend? How are the birds? You know, and I'm like, yep, yeah, it's great. You know, so we're always talking about duck hunting or fishing or, or whatever, you know, what they were up to. And, and I love that fact. I mean, I, it's one of the things that honestly over this pandemic has been killing me um, is, you know, I really miss the students. I miss hanging out with them. I miss seeing them. I miss talking with them and just, you know, sort of seeing what's going on. In fact, I had a, a one of my, uh, one of my students yesterday, she, she stuck around after class because we're having a lot of Zoom classes, and she said, oh, you know, I'm going to stick around. And I was like, great, you know, let's, let's see what's going on. And she's like, I've got a new gun. I want to try my new rifle out. I want to learn how to deer hunt. And I'm like, great, like wonderful. And I love when, when they're so enthusiastic about that. Um, and I love the fact that, you know, that our students, they coordinate within themselves to do more sort of hunting and fishing. Um, and I think that's just a wonderful aspect of BSU is that, you know, our, our Student Wildlife Society chapter, in fact, has run some trapping classes, some tracking classes. They've run um, some learn-to-hunt classes. In fact, just before the pandemic hit, um, they they wrote, and this was entirely on them. I was actually on my sabbatical in Australia, so I didn't. I, I periodically got an email from them about it, but they they were the they were driving the force for this. But they actually got a fifteen thousand um, dollar grant to teach hunting and fishing, um, specifically hunting in this case um, to um, well, it was targeted at, at the segment of the population that's historically not hunted and fished much. Um, so it was really targeted at women um, and minorities, which is exactly what we need if we want hunting and fishing to continue. Um, but they got a $15,000 grant. So they bought um, tree stands. They bought all kinds of waterfowl equipment, um, basically everything short of, of guns, um, to allow people to go out and do this stuff so students can actually you know, they can basically come and rent duck decoys. If they don't own duck decoys, they can rent them and take them out and go duck hunting with them. Um, so mm-hmm. the fact that the students are trying to promote that within themselves is also just fantastic. Um, you know, there's not many places in the world where, where students are trying to encourage other students to do more hunting and fishing. So, I think that this is really important for a couple of reasons. Um, you, you've got people, students coming in here who are fans and lovers and respecters of hunting and fishing. They're learning to be uh, 
biologists, which which means that in the future, you will have a group of biologists in the various you know state agencies, national agencies that understand hunting and fishing, its importance, and will be able to be uh, making making policy. That's that's huge. Well, and again, you know, it's important advocates. You know, we talk a lot about the value of public land and and why it's important and why we need to increase, um, you know, sort of access, you know, especially in urban, suburban areas um, where access has been limited and we need to break down some of the barriers. You know, one of the things about waterfowl hunting is that waterfowl hunting is expensive. You know, duck decoys are expensive, waders are expensive, um, and part of the grant required that we taught class um, we had these instructional things, um, you know, instructional, well, they were supposed to be sort of weekend-long classes. Um, I actually ended up running the class last spring um, in person. So I ended up having, I think I had eight women in my class who all wanted to learn how to duck hunt. And our goal um, was, and we had all set up, we were actually going to go out to North Dakota and we're going to go on a, on, on a spring snow goose hunt. Um, because when I got here, one of the first years I got here, we had an opportunity for the university to purchase um, a few firearms. So we bought five shotguns that the students can use for the trap um, for the trap club that I also am the advisor for. Um, if they don't have one, they can try it. So, again, trying to break down barriers. What are some of the barriers to people getting into these these outdoor activities? And if it's, you know, the barrier is the gear, well, let's see what we can do to do that, to sort of eliminate that. So we have waders, we have camouflage coats, we have hats and duck calls and decoys you can borrow, um, you know, everything basically short of a gun. And I was really, I was really bummed that we weren't able to go over to North Dakota and go, you know, spring snow goose hunting. I thought that would have been just a wonderful experience because most of the students actually, I don't think, I think only one of them had duck hunted before. Um, so these were all, these were seven new hunters that, you know, again, if you want hunting to grow, you better start including women, um, and you better start including minorities and people of color, because if you don't, hunting is going to die. Um, and that's going to be just, just a real tragedy for my money, because it is a, an important financial source for, um, you know, for resource agencies. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I love the fact that, you know, that a lot of the students are interested in going hunting and fishing. Um, and they, they're interested in lots of other stuff, too. I mean, it's not just hunting and fishing there. They're interested in skiing. They're interested in, um, you know, bird watching. And so there's a lot of different facets to the, to the student body at BSU, and I just I love the diversity of it. Later on, more with Brian Hiller, including a discussion about Purple Martins, which is not a Prince song. Up next, pro angler John Hoyer talks about his many adventures this winter and preparations for the upcoming National Walleye Tour. This is Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. Welcome back to Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. We're checking in with one of our good friends of the show, John Hoyer. John uh, won the National Walleye Tour a couple of years ago and uh, just got back from North Dakota. i got to tell you, John, we talked a couple of weeks. You were in the midst of that trip. Now, typically you don't hear about people going on vacation to North Dakota anytime, although some people do like the, uh, the Medora uh, Badlands area in the summer. But winter, that is uh, highly unusual. You might be the only person I've ever heard of vacationing in North Dakota in the wintertime. <laughs> Oh, that's really funny because we had that conversation about how this is going to be an annual vacation in January. (laughs) 
Well, there must be something good going on over there. Well, there there was for sure, and um, I don't know if any of your uh, listeners follow me on Instagram, but I kind of started recapping the whole trip um, this last week or whatever. I think I'm on my third post about it, but um, it actually started with a goose hunt in Montana that's open till the end of January, so that was a first. And then we're like, well, we're not going to drive through North Dakota twice without ice fishing. So we actually brought a whole trailer full of uh, snowmobile, four-wheeler, and all our ice fishing gear. We dropped that off. We went goose hunting for like five days. I then came back and started in on the ice fishing, and my friend Caden and I, either one of us had anything on our schedule until, um, you know, uh, the end of the month. So I was like, well, why would we leave? We're having so much fun. So we actually ended up fishing like, oh, man, I don't know, 12 or 13 days in a row. Wow. Well, where where are all the good ice fishing spots in North Dakota? Well, to be honest, I have fished a number of times, like only twice. So two little weekend trips, um, basically in that whole prairie pothole region. So like from Valley City to Bismarck. Um, and, you know, the first couple of times I fished, I was like, wow, this is really unique. You know, you're driving through a farmer's field that has, you know, mm-hmm. an old flooded road. There's your lake access because the water's up. Um and, you know, there just wasn't really big groups of people. There'd be, you know, three people on a hot perch bite, maybe 10. And then the, the opportunities were just endless. So um, I was really looking forward to getting back to it. And um, basically the idea spawned from doing research on the North Dakota Game and Fish um, survey um, reports that they have online. Okay. So they have all the information in the world. They have a lot of up-to-date uh, netting reports. So... You can go through, you know, pick a county and literally just blast through all the lakes. My friend Caden was doing it while we were driving to goose hunting, and we came up with, like, a hit list of, you know, 10 lakes we wanted to try for perch, and a couple of them happened to have walleyes in them, too. So we basically just started going down the list, and, you know, there was multiple reasons why it was so fun. It's like, okay, this looks like where you can access it. Yep, here's the flooded road. Uh, Drive the snowmobile right on the lake, and then just start perch fishing, and... Most of the lakes we fished didn't have anybody on them, and the most that we saw was maybe, you know, like eight vehicles or, you know, ten groups of people. So I'm a sucker for, like, new adventure, and then if you add in, like, nobody around, you know, that's really kind of my the pinnacle of fishing for me. Um, so we ended up finding a few lakes, and one of them had really nice perch on it. So we kind of keep going back to that one if we struck out just to make ourselves feel better. And, uh, I mean, catching one to one-and-a-half-pound perch and you're the only person on the lake, like, that—that that is literally the pinnacle of ice fishing for myself. Wow. So there's, uh, I mean, how many lakes are there in that uh, prairie pothole region? Oh, man. I mean, the ones with fish in them, mm-hmm. like 2,000. Really? Wow. A 1,000? Yeah. <laughs> a 1,000 that have been, like, stocked. I mean, there's... Maybe that's a little exaggeration. I mean, 500 that have been stocked, you know, and um, once you, like, have success on the lake, you can kind of start developing a pattern where it's like, okay, they stocked 3,500 perch um, four years ago. And that was, like, one of the lakes that we had we caught the big ones on. So, you know, I think some of these lakes winter kill. Um, some of them just didn't really have any other fish in them. So when they drop that many perch in there and there's no predators, and then, you know, people haven't fished it yet either. Um, that's where, like, 
you'll end up with five-year-old perch that are, you know, 12 or 13 inches long. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's kind of a little pattern to that too. But um, again, there's so many options. I, I told my friend Kate, and I'm like, I honestly think I could do this every day for like a month <laughs> in January in North Dakota. <laughs> Well, you know what? Uh, that's the the greatest winter um, endorsement I've heard for the North Dakota Dep- uh, Division of Tourism. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, did you like? I mean, did you check Devils like out or anything like that? Any of the biggies? No, we never even we never even went to Devils, and Devils is like one of my I mean top three all time favorite lakes to ice fish. Oh yeah. Um, and but for a lot of that reason is because you know it's such big water. It's nor, a more of a normal perch scenario where. Um, you know, I really kind of dialed it into why grown men, like there's no other type of ice fishing that can make grown men giggle like perch fishing. <laughs> um, and it's all based on the fact that you're searching all day and then you land on a school. They're not hard to catch. So everybody's catching them. And every time I drop the jig back down, there's that excitement, that anticipation that that whole school could be gone for the rest of the day. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, unhooking that fish, I get I call it perch fever. It's exactly what it is. Um, but, you know, dropping back down there as fast as you can, and then are they going to come up again? Okay, here they are. Um, so Devil's Lake on that big scale is normal to me, but when you go on to these little, like, smaller lakes where, you know, in my mind, a lot of them we just drilled, like, five sets of holes, and, you know, you're just taking little samples, and if you don't have a catch rate after two hours, you can just drive two miles to the next lake on your hit list, and sample it there, and lo and behold, I would say we probably had a 75% success rate on these lakes where we could have um, kept a limit of fish that were edible, you know, um, you know, 11-inch perch, even up to, you know, 12 inches on a lot of those lakes. So it was different but the same just because, um, you know, it was a smaller scale, but there's so many options. What were they biting on primarily? Uh, kind of the classic perch stuff, but with an asterisk because um, those sloughs, they vary in water clarity so much. It's unbelievable. So I fished literally the dirtiest water I've ever fished. Like, can't even see the bottom of the hole. So six-inch visibility. And then I will say that approach with caution on those lakes because some of them are legitimately spring-fed. And I've always heard, you know, oh, careful on that lake. It's got... It's got springs in it, and I don't mean to degrade that whole thought process when ice fishing. You know, the ice is never safe. It's a good rule of thumb, but I'm more of a practical person where it's like I've drilled 10,000 holes on this lake. The ice has always been the same, you know. Um, But we did fish a lake that had literally 14 uh, to 16 inches of ice, and then there was, like, these spots that were the size of, like, a boat and a trailer, Um uh, excuse me, a truck and a trailer or a half of a tennis court. And those spots had like three inches of ice. Mm. So they're really visible because there wasn't any snow. So we found like 12 of those on this big lake. And they were springs. And that lake was like 15-foot visibility. Wow. Um, so on those lakes, it was like classic perch stuff, um, which for me, it's three things. It's a, a Fusion 19, so a tungsten jig, like a 16-ounce tungsten and then the last couple of years, I just use a Berkeley Mayfly, which is, it just looks like a bug. Um, I really only use the red one. So that's my, like, last resort. 
the second resort is a um, just an eighth ounce rattle spoon. Again, I use Berkeley stuff, so the rattling scout spoon. Um, the first one I always drop down is Fire Tiger. Looks like a little perch. I pack that with Euro larva or a minnow head, and then my search lure is a number one size shiver minnow. So kind of the smallest standard uh, standard size shiver minnow. And it was kind of interesting where I thought the rattles would really kind of be the number one thing that dirty water, but I learned some new stuff, and it seemed like the water movement of those horizontal glide baits um, actually got noticed the most. Um, so just like basically reeling that thing through the water column and then dropping it through the water column, there was something about the water that that lure would displace that would bring these fish they would just come flying in. And then it was funny to see on my graph that you ended up having to get within like four or six inches of those fish for them to actually visually lock onto the bait. Um, But to call them in, it was just a series of really raising that thing and letting it fall. And I feel like they were, they were feeding so much with their senses in that lake, their lateral line and, you know, sensing pressure and stuff that um, that was the ticket to even get fish to come to you. So, um, Another little thing I learned in ice fishing, and I'll take that with me forever now, and it kind of makes sense to me, you know, again, why that works well in open water even, is when, you know, when you're throwing a big one-ounce glide bait, um, how much water that thing's actually moving. Well, since you got back, uh, where have you been fishing in Minnesota and Paul Bunyan country? Well, I'll be honest. I haven't wet a line in Minnesota since I got back, um, you know, the 15, it sounds like a vacation, and it is for me because, you know, we did a phone call when, actually when I was pulling off of that walleye lake in the morning when we were talking about the, the Brainerd Ice Tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that's kind of getting away from my fishing work. So this time of year for me, a lot of it's like ordering tackle, um, you know, ordering new stuff that I'm going to be promoting for the year, getting my electronics dialed in, checking on my boat build. Um, this year, trying to line up a motor for that new boat. So basically, I've been doing all fishing-related work from home, um, you know, the last, like, nine days. That's a great question uh, for me to follow up on. You are a professional angler. That means a lot of different things, uh, depending on what, what your role in the fishing world is. So for you, what is being a pro angler? Um, it's really a number of things, and I guess it's kind of a standard thing for a number of walleye anglers, but, um, you know, if you look to the bass side, there's a lot more guys that can officially call themselves, like, that's my, my only form of income now. It's been that way for, this will be the third year. So, um, you know, a lot of that is just kind of um, talking to sponsors, you know, ordering that tackle, like I said, and then there's also, like, a lot of consulting type stuff. So, you know, I get to talk to the softbait designers at Berkeley. Um, they might have some questions for me. I might have some ideas for them. Um, we might be talking about hard baits, you know, what's new, what's coming up. So, um, you know, nowadays a lot of that stuff is done over the phone where generally we'd actually have in-person meetings this time of year or we'd have meetings at the sports shows, um, you know, afterwards and stuff and kind of do all that stuff. Um, other than that, you know, social media is one of the things that, is the hardest part of my job, but I can also thank it for a lot of the um, opportunities I've had, you know, being active on Instagram and Facebook and, um, you know, sharing information with people, my travels, giving them the little tips like we just talked about, you know, sharing those, getting feedback, 
um, you know, that stuff becomes valuable to sponsors. And when they see you working hard at that and doing that, um, you know, that in turn can um, relate to, you know, a, a contract with them where, you know, now I'm actually getting paid for my social media support. Um, and, you know, whether it's a amount of money or um, also product or whatever, uh, it's, it's a, it's a dream world I'm living in. I'll be completely <laughs> honest, but, um, I'm not tired of it at all yet. And, you know, when I say I plan this vacation to fish for 14 days, you know, um, four or five times I stopped at sunset cause it was the most beautiful sunset I've ever seen with biting perch or walleyes to take my big boy camera out and to get some high res images. So, um, that's another part of my job that, is really challenging sometimes when they're biting, but I know that if I can turn in some nice photos um, of fish I caught and kind of tell that story in photos and share those with sponsors and on social media, that, um, you know, that's why one of the reasons why, you know, people follow me or they like to interact with me. You mentioned sports shows, a very big part of the fishing scene, but obviously uh, most of them were non-existent the last couple of winters due to COVID. Uh, how has that affected things? Uh, well, hopefully none of my sponsors are listening because I'm going to sound like a slacker. But <laughs> <laughs> so that was always like dates where we just had to block it off. And, um, you know, inevitably it was January, February, March, April, where some of my friends on the National Walleye Tour, they don't ice fish as much. So, you know, that was part of part of their job was to be at those sports shows in booths, um, you know, talking to consumers, talking to fishermen and helping out sponsors. So uh, with those eliminated, um, you know, it's really freed up some time, but it's also put a lot more uh, emphasis on the digital media part of it. So, um, you know, now I find sponsors asking a lot more for, can you do like five little video tips, um, you know, while you're out on the ice? Yep. I can do that for sure. So it's more like we're, working remotely and then people are really um obviously as you've probably seen the uptick they're concentrating a lot more on that digital media stuff which mm-hmm. um you know they've always had it but now when their their back is against the wall and realize that's their only way to contact you know consumers um it's really been put under the spotlight now and it's something that we have to do and we have to excel at so it's a fun challenge it's a changing world but you know um Obviously, you hear me fast talking about fishing. It's always exciting to talk to you and to talk to people at sports shows. So I really miss that, the interaction, um, you know, with people at sports shows, getting to see smiling faces, shaking hands and everything. So I I really can't wait for that to be back. You know, I I expect that as we move forward and get to a more normal life down the road, um, a lot of what we learn to do remotely will stay in place. But uh, I, I think there's... Definitely still a place for live face-to-face, as you just mentioned, uh, communication. I think it's very important. I think people miss it. But I, I wonder if things like, um, you know, the um, the uh, uh, fishing apps uh, that allow you to get the fish back in the water quicker, if those will stick around uh, even when we're, we're back to normal tournaments. Yeah, I agree for sure. And, um, you know, the... Right, like the fish donkey tournaments. They just pulled off maybe, probably, yeah, sure, the biggest one ever, mm-hmm. you know, just a week ago. So, um, yeah, there'll be a lot of, you know, there's a lot of good things. And, you know, I like to highlight the good things that have come out of COVID. And, you know, that'll be one of them. But, like, less people on the road. Uh, yeah. 
less rush hour traffic in Minneapolis. You know, there's like just a few good things that have come out of it. And, um, you know, in the fishing industry, I agree. Like that, that'll be one of them for sure. Well, and just a lot more people got to go fishing, people who maybe had done it in the past but had kids and they were doing sports and some of that stuff didn't happen. So dads and kids and grandpas were doing a lot more fishing last year. I know license sales were way up and hopefully that sticks. I hope that really sticks. Yeah, I think history kind of shows that, um, you know, any type of recession or whatever, um, you know, even ones that aren't related to a pandemic have shown big spikes in the outdoors. And, you know, people will get down to kind of the bare essentials for fun. And in reality, yeah, the stuff that I use, the stuff I have in my boat is ridiculous. Like I said, it's this dream world I'm living in. (laughs) But in reality, to buy a nice combo and to go fish off of a public fishing pier in Minnesota and to catch some bluegills with your kids, I mean, it's like the purest form of fishing that we all started with. And um, that part of it and the amount of those anglers that are going to be retained is really a cool thing for the fishing industry because, you know, we all love the fishing industry. And, you know, to see people, um, you know, going to sporting events, I love all that stuff too. But it's really kind of a cool scenario where, you know, these outdoor activities are super healthy in this case, you can socially distance. It's time spent with your family. And I think inevitably, if, if anyone went fishing five times for the first time this last year or got back into fishing and went fishing five or ten times, like, for sure they had fun some of those days. And they're going to remember that. And uh, history shows that a lot of those new anglers and that fishing industry spending will be retained and there will be an uptick in um, license sales for a long time. Wow. Well, I know that uh, you just got back from one trip, and uh, and I know you got the National Walleye Tour coming up. But you're gonna you're gonna try something a little different here in the next week or two. Yes, I am, and uh, that's actually what I'm working on today. Um, I'll actually be fishing as a co angler for for the uh, FLW um, Toyota Series event. So, and that's uh, that's a bass about, event. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. So. Um, some of my, I put a little post on Instagram on my story about I'm officially signed up, paid my entry fee, and half my friends are like, oh, no, you're going to the dark side. <laughs> then my bath friends are like, welcome to the bright side. Welcome to the good side, you know? <laughs> and uh, So I love fishing for everything, and I fish in a number of, you know, smaller tournaments around the Twin Cities and stuff, you know, Tuesday night or this, um, Frankie's tournament, stuff like that. And um, so I'm really looking forward to going back to being a co-angler, which I loved on the walleye tour. And a lot of that was, like, interacting with my pro and, um, you know, really figuring out, like, how to make the day as positive as possible. So um, I'm a little scared about, you know, getting in one of those bass boats that goes, like, 80 mm-hmm. and putting my life in the hands of uh, – you know, maybe somebody who's a little more aggressive at driving a boat than I would be. <laughs> but, you know, that'll all add to the excitement. And it's on Lake of the Ozarks in Missouri. So, you know, a beautiful, huge reservoir that has a ton of history in bass fishing. And it, the dates are kind of lined up where it could be this amazing pre-spawn bite where, you know, you might see 30-pound bags. So, um, yeah, prepping all my bass tackle, which I don't know. I probably know about... Mm, five percent ten percent about bass that i do about walleyes i guess in my mind um but it'll be exciting for me and a a cool way to spend you know the first week of march and then after that you're going even further south 
Well, no, actually right before that. Oh, before that. Yeah, so um, a couple of my friends from the Next Bite TV, they planned a trip, and it's down to Marco Island, which I actually have a lot of history uh, saltwater fishing down there in December. And so they kind of planned a trip. We rented this nice house, and we're bringing golf clubs, and we're going to go fishing. So um, that's the plan. So that's going to be the week ahead of time, and then I just kind of changed my flight to fly into Missouri instead of back to the frigid north country. So those are going to be actual vacations, but I feel like credibility-wise, I earned it after being in the frigid north country for 21 <laughs> days in January. So, like, I kind of deserve this, and I'm excited about it. Okay, so you you went you went uh, goose hunting. You had yep. ideal ice fishing. You're going down to Florida to fish and golf. Then you're in yep. a bass tournament, and then it'll be time for the National Walleye Tour. That is like yeah. that is you are you really are living the dream. I I am, and I'm actually kind of bashful about it. And <laughs> I, I tell my close friends, I'm like, I I'm putting a social media post up. I hope you're getting enjoyment out of it. It's ridiculous what I'm doing. I know that, but I, uh, my dad's a Lutheran pastor, and if he's taught me one thing, it's to count your blessings. You know. <laughs> So I count them every day, and I mean, literally, I don't, I don't even like telling people that schedule you just rattled off, but it is true that's that's what's on my schedule. So, next question, you're not married, are you? No, I'm not. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> that's a standard question. <laughs> I imagine it is. That's like the first thing that people are trying to do the math on, and they're like, if I was, it wouldn't be happily, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so when does the National Walleye Tour start? Uh, that kicks off the end of April. So the dates are like, uh, I believe the 27th and 28th of April. Okay. Uh, 29th and 30th of April. Okay. So that last and, and where do we open up this year? That is in Chamberlain, South Dakota, on the Missouri River. So um, we actually had it scheduled there for last year, and then obviously we had to reschedule a bunch of tournaments uh, due to COVID. So uh, we're going back there, and you know, it's it's really well known for for a percentage of walleye anglers, but like that spring bite is very popular. A lot of people travel out there. It's a huge numbers game, and you know, you throw a tournament uh, at the end of a spawn potentially. And, you know, it really opens up the area. Um, you know, like all walleyes, generally they spawn and they're gone. So, you know, if they're spawning in the upper, you know, two miles of that reservoir up by the dam, um, the second those big females spawn, you know, they're basically on their way to their summer homes. And, you know, that can be in a reservoir a lot of times 20, 30, 40, 50 miles, you know, south or downstream. Um, so, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I haven't really fared well on the reservoirs other than Sakakawea. Um, I'm just kind of starting to figure stuff out. But after Sakakawea last year, I'm really confident in, um, you know, knowing how the big picture works. So uh, like all NWT tournaments, it'll be really exciting to see who figures it out. And in South Dakota, there's a slot limit, so you can have um, one over 20 inches per day per person. So um, I'm assuming that we're going to be able to have two over 20 inches, so two overs, and then three under 20 inches that we weigh. So uh, another little variable that adds to excitement is, you know, how big of a fish over 20 inches you can't call. So 
you going to keep that 23 incher or do you think you're going to catch a couple 25s? So, mm. um, you know, it really makes for exciting finishes and leaderboards flip flopping and stuff like that in those tournaments. And, uh, yeah, just another thing to be excited about. Is there, uh, some COVID processes still in place for this year, I presume? Yeah, for sure. I'm sure we're going to go with the exact same format as last year. So, uh, instead of in-person rule meetings, there are uh, Zoom video conferences for the rule meetings. And then it's all socially distanced and whatnot at the weigh-in. And um, basically you contact your co-angler. You know, they send a mass text out with a big list that shows your co-angler. So, you know, you meet them in the morning. And, um, yeah, they did a great job last year. Obviously, that was high on everyone's priority list. And, um, yeah, you know, the National Wally Tour needs to set an example. So, um, you know, we travel to these different states. Some people are more, um, I guess I want to call it fanatical, but, you know, more serious about those guidelines. So um, I think they did a great job, and I didn't hear any um, grumblings or anything. You know, um, they did a good job. We put it in place, and everyone kind of followed the guidelines, and then, yeah, it worked out great. John Hoyer is a professional uh, angler living the dream. Uh, John, if we want to live vicariously through you, how do we follow you? Uh, John Hoyer Fish on Instagram. Uh, that's kind of my favorite one that I do the most on. But I also share my story now on Facebook um, on my Hoyer Fishing uh, page. So the story is kind of a fun, um, up-to-date, day-to-day. You see me laughing. You'll see the lures I'm pulling fish out of the hole with or netting. Um, in real time, and I answered tons of messages each day. With, you know, when I do document a fishing trip, and it's a really fun way to interact with people and fishing. So John Hoyer fish, and then Hoyer fishing on Facebook. Hoyer fishing on Facebook. John Hoyer fish on Instagram. He's John Hoyer. Great guest. Love having him on the show. John, thanks for taking the time today. Good luck in your many ventures. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kev. Up next, we check back in with BSU Wildlife Biology Professor Brian Himmer and get the details on his Purple Martin Project. This is Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. One of the hallmarks of both the Aquatic Biology Program and Wildlife Biology Program at Bemidji State University is their in-the-field experience and studies. One of them Brian Hiller has been involved with is a study of Purple Martins. Tell me a little bit uh, about the, the Martin Project and the other uh, projects you've been involved with. What are you trying to solve, and, and what are you doing out there? So purple martins are a, are a really sort of interesting species. They they were, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, they were like, there were purple martin houses just about everywhere. Um, and purple martins are a colonial nesting species. They're, a, they're a, the largest swallow we have, and they rely very heavily on, on especially dragonflies, mayflies, so large insect hatches um, throughout the summer. They migrate all the way down to um, the Amazon basin in Brazil, and in some cases there are, you know, 150,000 of them, you know, nesting on an island that's 100 yards long by 50 yards wide. So they, they end up in these huge concentrations. Um, and it's funny, I was at a conference one of the first couple of years I was here, and Mike North, who's uh, a master bander with the Minnesota DNR down in Brainerd, he he had these two posters up about Purple Martins, and I was like, oh, that's cool. I was like, we got a ton of those up in Bemidji. And he kind of looked at me sideways, and he's like, what do you mean? I was like, yeah, there's a, there's a ton of them. You know, I'm right in back of my building. They're flying around like crazy all the time. And he's like, what? I was like, no, no, really. And 
so I was like, no, I'm not kidding. Like, you know, next spring we'll, you know, we'll have you up and we'll, you know, I'll show you what I'm talking about. And there were a couple of houses. There was one house at Cameron um, that was on the fence along the Cameron boat launch, but you couldn't get into it. You know, it was a really nice house and the Martins were using it, but there was no way to use it for research because there was no way to access it. It turns out that on private land, farther up the west side of the lake, there were a couple of uh, a couple of little houses and colonies that were in use. And so one of the first things we did was um, we uh, we worked with the DNR non-game program. Christine Herwig um, up there at the regional office was really helpful. Uh, and the DNR helped us not only get houses but also install them. So now if you go to Cameron Boat Launch, there are two houses installed there. Um, and these apartment buildings, we can raise them up and down. And behind BSU, we put in two as well, and they're full every summer. So if you walk along the lakeshore, you will hear Purple Martins chirping and, and you know, calling all the time. Um, and what we were interested in was, A, you know, how many are there? What's the, what's the sort of occupancy rate? How many of, them, how many of the houses here are being used? Um, and it turns out almost all of them. I think last year we had one apartment that wasn't full, that didn't have an active nest in it um, throughout the summer out of, so we have a single house that has 12 apartments, and then we have 24 behind BSU. So the single one is down on the South Beach, um, down on Lake Bemidji. Plus we have two at Cameron. There's one at the north end at Jim Humanick's house, and then we have one at the Gengelhoff's house just north of Cameron, and that one was full as well. So we, we were full. We produced, I think we banded something like 500 babies this year. Um, and what we're trying to figure out is, you know, our interest is, What's the return rate? How many of these are the same individuals coming back over and over and over again? And I have a graduate student, Zane Danone, right now, who is looking exactly at that. So we started banning in 2014, um, in that July of 2014, and he's going to look back through all those records, and he's going to be able to basically trace down what percentage of the existing um, Purple Martins coming to our houses this year were the result of the breedings from 2014. So how often those birds are coming back to this place and, and re-nesting over and over again and bringing their offspring back, um, which is kind of cool. I mean, we're now seven years into the project, and we have, I can trace, you know, some of the individuals from this year all the way back to 2014. I know Whoa. who their great, great, great grandparents were, <laughs> um, which is kind of cool, you know, to sort of look at that. You know, you know that's, um, they're really, their population has gone down. They've really struggled since people stopped putting houses up as, as often. Um but they're sort of an iconic, you know, um, you know, colonial species that a lot of people really get a kick out of. And I love watching them. They're a lot of fun to work with. Um, and because they're, you know, they're sort of along that walking path along the lake, a lot of people get to see them as well. So it's a, it's a fun project. We've got a lot of other cool stuff we're going to do in the future. Um, maybe um, satellite track them down to, uh, to sort of see where they're stopping and how they're getting there. Um, be, again, trying to figure out conservation-wise, what are the most important locations as they move south and then as they move back north? So we're going to get some money and hopefully put some uh, put some crackers on them and see where they're going and how they're getting there. I would presume you, like everybody else, has had the challenges of COVID, uh, trying to interact with students. Um, what's the biggest obstacle it has presented to your program? I think the hard part um, is that you know, a lot of what we do at BSU, and, and this is sort of the way that, that Dr. Rave and, and I really thought about the program. How do we, how do we get students jobs, right? Um, you know, one of the big challenges when you start a new, a new program like this is you've got programs like the University of Wisconsin, which have been around for 100 years. 
University of Minnesota, which has been around for, you know, 100 years. How do we get students in a new program to compete with graduates of those programs? And for us, it was taking advantage of, like you say, what we have around here, taking advantage of our place. So a lot of our program is built around the hands-on interaction of going out and working with the DNR when they're doing duck banding or going out to, you know, a bear den with the folks from Grand Rapids. So it's a lot of hands-on outside field work that doesn't work well in the COVID era. We can't put people in vans and drive them. I can't put, you know, a dozen students in a van and drive them up to Deep Lake because the DNR is doing duck banding and we're going to go do that. I can't put them in the van for two hours. There's just, it's not possible. I mean, you know, we're very limited. We can only put three people in a van at a time. And with, you know, a 12 student class, that's four, that's four vans worth. So that's a lot of extra resources. And honestly, it's a lot of extra pollution and all kinds of other stuff that go along with that. Um, and, and then the risk of getting, you know, quite honestly, a deadly, a deadly disease, um, is not something we want to expose people to. We want to keep that down as much as possible. We would love for it, you know, everybody get a vaccine and let it go away. We would love it to go away because I really, I want my students back in class. I really miss them a lot. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things we did was, um, instead of having them do the hands-on, we allowed them. So what I did was I would sort of videotape myself going out and doing some of these activities, like for instance, going out and doing a habitat reconnaissance where we go out and evaluate a given piece of property for its management potential. And then, I posted the video, and then they had to either go out and write up a report, a written report, or they could go out and videotape themselves doing the same thing. So going on a piece of property wherever they were, because a lot of students aren't here. They're at home. So I allowed them to go videotape it and basically provide a video report similar to what I had done as a sort of different way to, to think about how we can you know, communicate in this, in this era of COVID and still get them some of the skills and experience that they need. Well, I know that uh, we've got quite a vast audience here in the North Country. Of, I'm sure tons of potential students who think this would be really intriguing. Uh, definitely have a big audience down in the Brainerd area as well. And our podcast, uh, our top, uh, our top listenership is in the metro area. So there's a lot of students. You can you've been uh, doing a great job of recruiting here. So what are their next steps if they're saying, hearing this and they're saying, "Gosh, that, this really sounds great." Uh, how do they how do they take that next step? Well, the first thing to do is to start looking around on the website, um, you know, poke around the biology website. You know, you can email either myself, you can email Dr. Jake House, you can email Dr. Elizabeth Rave if you're interested in wildlife. Um, if you're more interested in trees and plants, um, Dr. Mark Fulton is the person. If you're interested in any aquatic stuff, you've got uh, Dr. Rick Cook, you've got Dr. Debbie Gelda, and Dr. Andy Hafes, who's the fisheries person. Um, and so, you know, you can start by that. You can also start, uh, you know, with an application. Um, you know, we're certainly always looking for new students. We, you know, we're our program has grown and it's con- continuing to grow. You know, as you and I were talking about off air, you know, a lot of a lot of programs have seen you know sort of declines. And I actually had to offer a second section of one of my classes this, this spring because I I was already full and I had enough for basically a second section. And all my classes are full. All the wildlife classes are full, um, in spite of the fact that I taught some of them. Previously, I taught them in the fall, and they're still full this spring. Um, so our program is going really strong. Again, you know, taking advantage of, of as many of the outdoor resources as possible. Um, you know, our, our expectation is that we're going to get this under control and be back in person in the fall um, so that we can get back to get back to doing the stuff that we do. You know, in the meantime, um, like I said, you know, apply and, and 
try and come up and see if you can get a visit in or look at virtual visits. Um, it's certainly a, a program that's designed to get you hands-on experience that allows you to compete for jobs, um, you know, right away. And our students are having pretty good success with that too. Um, you know, some of the other things that we're trying to make make do with in this in this era of of COVID. Unfortunately, our wildlife society has not been able to do as much hands-on stuff. So we're having experts come in and give guest lectures and guest presentations via Zoom. Um, in fact, we've got one of our alums um, from back in 96. He was just a biology, he, you know, before we had any wildlife, uh, Dr. Chris Nikolai. He's the, um, he's the scientist, the waterfowl scientist over at Delta Waterfowl. He's going to give a presentation to our group next week about exactly that. How do you get to where you want to go? You know, what what's the process? What kind of classes do you need to take? What kind of experience do you need to, you know, get under your belt and, and how do you do that? So, you know, we're all just sort of muddling through this, trying to make do and, and doing the best we can while we, uh, you know, while we're stuck in this certain situation. Speaking of classes to take, different high schools have different levels of, of, uh, of um, class offerings to them. But if you happen to be in, in one that's got some, some variety there, you're a sophomore, junior, and you're, you're thinking this might be a way you want to go, what classes should you take to make sure you're you're going in the right direction? And certainly, you know, the biology classes, the chemistry classes, um, you know, the math classes for sure, um, the English classes. Writing is actually a really important part of it. Um, you know, speech and communication are really important parts of this. Doesn't matter, you know, what kind of job you end up doing with wildlife, you're going to have to, you know, you're going to end up having to deal with the public in some way, shape, or form. And you should be able to be a you know a good communicator of, of science, um, and be able to answer questions. You know, um, and sometimes they're they're not fun questions, they're not easy questions. But again, be able to articulate your answers you know clearly and, and simply. Um, so those kind of classes are really helpful. Um, you know, again, once you know once you get to BSU, the, the sort of classes, the base classes are always biology, chemistry, um, math classes, eventually stats classes. Um, you know, those kinds of things are really helpful. All right. Great conversation today with Dr. Brian Hiller, a professor of biology and a wildlife specialist at Bemidji State University, discussing the wildlife biology program and, and kind of the overview of biology programs in BSU in general. Uh, again, great place, great stuff happening there. Brian, we really love uh, getting caught up with what's going on, and thank you for taking the time today. Yeah, no problem, Kev. I appreciate it, and uh, thank you for, for the interest. It's a, it's a great program and a great place, and uh, we certainly welcome having some students come up and check it out. My thanks once again to Dr. Brian Hiller and John Hoyer for joining me today on Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors is sponsored by Clearbrook Electric, Timberline Sports and Convenience in Black Duck, Pepsi Nye Bottling of Bemidji, Bonded Lock and Key, your home for Liberty Safes, Ace on the Lake on Lake Bemidji's South Shore, and DS Beverage, Paul Bunyan Country's distributor of Anheuser-Busch. Thank you for taking time to join us today. I'm Kev Jackson. We'll do it again next week.